says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all, give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him, up, uh, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard, your, guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to, to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an appropriate time. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met yet, so glad that you're here with us today at New City. And uh, we're going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, just kind of going through every verse, passage by passage. And um, today, uh, the passage that Dale read uh, mentions a character that we don't always see a whole lot of in the Bible, mentions the devil. The devil plays a big uh, role in this scene, as well as Jesus. And, um, uh, you know, what's interesting about that is the devil, we don't really, culturally, we, we're not really comfortable with the idea of the devil. Um, because the devil, typically in our culture, is either like a joke, like ha-ha, or like a Halloween costume, or, um, you know, we're just kind of used to the red suits and the pitchforks. And um, that happens a whole lot. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing this week. And then, um, you know, sometimes when I'm preaching on Saturday night, uh, Hannah, my wife, and I uh, have um, uh, started sometimes to watch Saturday Night Live. Um, uh, and the reason for that is it makes me stop working on the sermon. So I'm not going into wee hours of the night. Um, I can just kind of give it to God and uh, hopefully laugh a little bit if it's funny. It's not always funny. But um, last night, you know, I've been preparing for this, and then we turn on Saturday Night Live over at uh, 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 my in-law's house, and I have a picture. The first scene of Saturday Night Live was uh, the devil right there in a red suit with horns, and uh, they made all sorts of jokes, ha-ha, yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm literally talking about the devil tomorrow and thinking about how culturally we just mock the devil and just kind of act like, uh, act like it's not real, don't know what to make of it, and then it pops up on the screen. And I think, um, and we can take that off. I don't want to say, what kind of church is this? Pastor gets up and starts talking about the devil, showing red suits. Okay. Um, I think one of the reasons our culture is uncomfortable with the devil and with this um, 
notion of evil is because of that, all those caricatures we've heard, and we, and we kind of focus just on what's in the material world, what we have evidence of, what we can see and taste and touch and feel, and uh, what science shows us. Um, there's a great quote um, by C.S. Lewis, the author, who, um, who said this about how we interact with uh, d- uh, devils, uh, and I have it up. It says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. So that's like you don't even think they're real. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. Uh, And that's like the people who think that the devil's around every corner. (laughs) Uh, Why'd I do that? Oh, the devil made me do it. Um, But then he goes on and says, uh, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. Either way, if you think they don't exist at all, and that's made up, and evil is just, you're not really sure what to think of that, or if you think that they are behind everything and pulling the strings like puppet masters behind the whole world, the devils are happy either way. And while our culture denies the devil, um, we can't really deny the existence of evil in the world. You know, we say all the time, just look at the News headlines, just look at the, the places of brokenness and destruction that, and pain that happen in our lives. I think of last uh, Easter 2019 as we woke up and we were excited and got ready to worship and I started looking at my news feed and I saw, oh no, there's been a bombing. There's been an Easter bombing in Sri Lanka. 259 people died, most of them in church while worshiping on Easter. Evil. And it's not just somewhere on the other part of the world. I think of, uh, you know, however many months after that, and I wake up on, um, actually, I think it must have been a Saturday, I'm guessing, but um, you hear about the shooting in Poway at the Chabad um, synagogue right here in our own back door. Evil. You look back over the last century, more people died in bloody wars than have ever in the history of this planet. Evil, evil evil. And yet, culturally, we we're, we're just kind of ignore it. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Tom Wright, says we ignore evil until it slaps us in the face. And then we're like, oh yeah, there is evil in the world. And if we ignore it, we just end up telling each other, hey, just think happy thoughts. Or, or what you need to do most is listen to your heart and follow your truth. And yet there's a lot of people listening to their heart and following their truth and doing horrible things. There is evil in the world. And so I'm not saying that I can stand here and say I understand it fully or I understand evil fully, but I am saying the Bible asks us to consider evil when it talks about the devil, when it talks about the personification of evil, the tempter, the accuser, our spiritual enemy. And the role of the devil in scripture is always opposing what opposing God and opposing what is good. Opposing God's good will. The, the role of the devil is to try to drive a wedge between us and God. The scripture says he's, the thief comes to st- steal, and I can never say this right. <laughs> steal, kill, and destroy. I say steal, kill. Come <laughs> to steal. Um, <laughs> the thief comes to do that <laughs> whatever I said 
Also says that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Those are the images that we're given in the scriptures of our spiritual enemy. And we may not um, be comfortable with the imagery that gets the caricatures of the devil, but we've definitely seen people whose hearts and lives have been stolen and killed and destroyed. We've seen lives be devoured. We've seen people's souls be eaten up by drugs and addiction. And maybe some of us here have felt that. Maybe we've been overwhelmed by anger and rage and division and hurt in our own families. And so I'm bringing all this up today to say the significance of this scene that we're looking at in the message and as we're reading through today, it's not just random temptations bouncing off Jesus. It's not just this scene of like, oh yeah, Jesus got baptized last week and now he went and the Spirit led him up to uh, be tempted in the wilderness and they're kind of, you know, three weird temptations and, and he just says, nope, 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 and, uh, and then that's it. No, instead, when, when we read this scene and when we interact with it today, I want, you to, I want to challenge you to think of it this way. This is the forces of evil trying their best to undermine Jesus in his identity and his mission before he even gets started. This is the devil saying, this is the, this is the time I need to get him before he gets out there and gets this message of love and grace and forgiveness, before he gets out there and does a miracle and does healing and, and proclaims that he's the way and the truth and the life, before he goes to Nazareth and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I'm here to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Before he does any of that, the devil says, I want to get him now. Because what we learned in the last passage last week is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that, that Israel has been hoping for to come and save his people from their sins. And he's even not just the Savior of Israel. He's come to be the light of the world, the light to the Gentiles. He's come to be the Savior of the world, whosoever will. But if the devil can get Jesus to give into evil right now, then Jesus would be part of the problem of evil, not the solution. If we're not careful, here's what I'm arguing today. If we're not careful, uh, how many have heard this passage before? Jesus being tested in the wilderness? Yeah? If we're not careful, we can be so familiar with it that we just look at it and just read it through and think, okay, we're going to get some tips and tricks on how to avoid temptation. This is what we need to do. Quote these Bible verses, bam, bam, bam. And now I can resist temptation. And here's the thing. We don't, don't get me wrong. We do find those principles in here on how to resist temptation. And we're going to talk on those today. But there's so much more than that. Because Jesus, I believe this passage is showing, Jesus is not just a good example for us to try to imitate. Jesus is the only one who can defeat evil. Jesus is the one I believe this passage shows Jesus is the one who succeeds in all the places that we fail. So if you're here today and you want to be part of the solution to the evil that's in our world that surrounds us, which I do, and I believe many of you do, I, I'm just going to assume that all of you do. <laughs> if you want to be part of the solution, you've got to see Jesus not just as your example, but as our champion. The one who defeats evil. The one who succeeds where we fail. Amen? Amen. All right. 
So to get there, first we got to talk about where we fail, and then we're going to talk about where Jesus succeeds, okay? And before that, we're going to pray. God, we just thank you so much. Thank you for this day and this gathering of people. And uh, Lord, it, 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 um, it really is an honor just to, to be with brothers and sisters, to be with the people of God, and to have, um, have the opportunity to worship you together, to sing songs, to hear from your word. I pray that you would guide uh, this time that we have together in your word, um, Lord, that you would use my words and... Uh, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, move and minister to our hearts today, that we would be different than how we came um, by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So first, if we're going to see Jesus as the one who succeeds where we fail, then we've got to talk about where we fail, where the scriptures say we fail, because evil is not just Jesus' problem. Even though he's battling evil in the wilderness, it's not just Jesus' problem, it's our problem too. And that's what the scriptures argue And the scriptures talk about from the very beginning places where we as as humans fail. Fail to live up to the identity that God has given us and the call that he's put in our life. So the the first place we see that is all the way back in the very beginning. Anyone ever heard of Adam and Eve? Yeah, okay. Um, Well, one of the titles for Adam is the son of God. Actually, it's said in the last passage that we read that, that Adam um, was God's son as the first human. And also, this passage as we're reading it, we realize that this is only the second time in the whole Bible that we've seen the devil be in person tempting someone. And when was the other time? It was in the garden with Eve and Adam. And at that time, what was the, what was the lie that, that, uh, that uh, my goodness, yes. What was the lie that the serpent told? Yes, you can be like God. You won't die. You surely won't die if you partake of that fruit. God knows that you'll be like him and you'll know good and evil. And we have that lie that we've talked about. If you do this, you'll become like God, whereas God had made them in the image of God already. And yet taking the fruit, they bite into the lie. They believe the devil's word over God's word. They choose to serve their own desires instead of God's will and God's word. They worshiped a good thing over God and tested God's willingness to give their best to them. Taking the fruit is a way of saying a lot of things, but one of them is saying, God, you're not giving me the best, and I've got to take it into my hands. God, I know what you've said is good and evil, but I can do better at deciding that. And here you've got humans made in God's image, made for loving relationship with God, made to... to to steward and rule over his creation, to walk with God in the cool of the day. The the identity is there. You are my children. The, The mission is there. Go forth and be fruitful and multiply and steward. Enjoy everything that I've created. I've given you everything you need. Do that. And yet, they fell short. 
But that's not the only time we've seen it in Scripture. If it was, that would be a really short Bible that we'd have, right? But moving ahead, and I'm not going to list every time either because that would be a really long message. But moving from Adam, the first son of God who was given an identity and a mission and yet fell short, traded the truth for a lie. We move much further into the story to Israel who the Bible calls God's son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. That when they went to Egypt, they were just one family, and then God blessed them and multiplied them, and they became a great nation, but they were in slavery. And so the whole Exodus story, God pulls them out miraculously out of Egypt. They, they go through the sea on dry ground, and, and the people who had oppressed them and kept them enslaved were defeated all in one swoop, and then where do they go? They go into the wilderness to do what? To meet God. And there at the mountain of God, they hear, they hear what the law is. They hear with joy in their hearts, this is what it means to be God's people. I've saved you. I've delivered you. I've brought you through the water, and now you're here, and this is what it means to live as the nation I've called you to be. That, that God had said to Abraham way before that, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. All the world is going to be blessed through you. And this people, Israel, that was God's call. That was their identity. You are my people and I am your God. You are my children. You are my son, Israel. And this is your mission. To show the world what God is like to show the world God's heart of love for the world, to live in a way that's holy and that honors God and points people up to him and relying on him. And even, it says in Isaiah, to be a light for the Gentiles. That's part of your role. You need to be a light to everyone who's not yet part of Israel. I want them to see what God is like. I'm inviting them in, and you get to be part of that. So they have an identity, and they have a mission. But what happens? They fall short. They fall short. And the first examples we see of it is in the wilderness. They, they, they get through the wilderness, and God, even though God has saved them with all these miracles, now they get hungry, and they say, how are we going to eat? And they test God with, um, with bread, right? They say, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? You should have left us in Egypt. We were better off being slaves than being out here to die in the wilderness alone. Just having experienced all the miracles that God did to save them. You guys following with me? So they fail that test. The other test is God has saved them. They're called to just worship God, right? But what do they do when Moses is up on the mountain in Exodus 32? They build a golden calf, right? Which is what? Worshiping something other than God. They build a golden calf out of the gold that God had put into their pockets when they left. They took off the earrings that the Egyptians, their oppressors, had given them, and they melted them, and they shaped it into a calf. And then Aaron stands up and says, Behold, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Failed test number two. And there's all sorts of heart motivations that could be there, but one of it is we don't know where God is. We don't know where Moses is. We haven't seen him, so let's have something we can control and we can see and manipulate and believe that we can control our surroundings with it. So let's worship this calf. Failed test number two. 
Test number three, they're running out of water. And instead of prayerfully believing that God had saved them out of slavery, God had brought them through the sea on dry ground, God surely has love for us and wants to save us in this drought, in this time. It says that they tested God. In Exodus 17, it says they asked, is the Lord really among us? Is the Lord among us? So Israel, God's son, has an identity, has a mission, but falls short. And moving, zooming ahead, and just broader. It's not just Adam. It's not just Israel. It's all of us. We read the New Testament, and one of the most succinct verses that says it is Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're If you're here today, I'm sure you can resonate with this. All of us, in in our own way, have taken the fruit. I don't know what's going on. Is that my microphone? Let's see here. All of us have taken the fruit and said, God, I know your way, but I want to choose my way. Or God, I know you said that you provide for my needs, but I think you're holding out the best from me. I want to choose what's best for me. All of us have... Uh, craved the bread and doubted that God would provide the bread we need. All of us have worshipped the idols in our hearts and put other good things before God, whether that's our, our, um, our bank accounts or our careers or our education or our relationships. We've put other good things before God. We have all sinned. And I'm sharing that today not to bring us all down, um, but simply to state that evil is not an us and them issue. When it comes to evil in the world, the Bible tells a story that says that we, you and I, every one of us, are part of that problem. Not that you and I, every one of us, have caused all of those problems, But that the urge for us to deny the identity God's given us and to walk away from the vocation, the the mission that he's put in our life, and to do it our own way and to claim for ourselves the knowledge of good and evil. We are part of the problem when it comes to evil. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, um, survived the gulag prison in Soviet Russia and lived to tell about it, and maybe you've heard of him, but one of the quotes from his book says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And I'm told that he was asked why he wasn't going out for retribution to the people who had imprisoned him when he was set free and going back to his country land. And they're saying, why aren't you calling for another revolution? Why aren't you calling for a war? And he says that the line between good and evil passes through every single one of us. Like I said, I'm not bringing this up to bring us down. But what I am bringing it up for is to say this. When we look at this passage, we don't need tips on how to be a better person. 
we need to learn how to come from death to life. There's an old quote that says, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. And women. (laughs) He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Which is why Ephesians 2 starts out, as for you, you were dead in your sins. But then verse 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Here's why we have to interact with the whole point of evil and us being part of the problem is because that's when the good news gets good. Until you realize that you're part of the problem, of the big problem, until, you re- until I realize that I'm part of the problem, then I'm just going to look for tips on how to be a better person. Jesus, tell me how I can be a little bit better person. But if you're stuck in that cycle, you don't realize how broken you are. You don't. And there's not an end to that cycle. I mean, yeah, he could give you tips on how to be a better person, but at the end, mm. <laughs> I love, uh, I've always loved the New Living Translation version of the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of it, the first beatitude, and it says this, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That, that poor in spirit, that's the way it translates. Those who realize their need for him. Blessed are those who are aware of their need for God, for they will receive the kingdom. If you don't know that you're dead in your sins without Jesus, then you're not going to know what it's like to be alive in Jesus. You're going to stay on this track of, well, I need to be a little bit better person in this area, and I I need to be a little bit better husband, and I need to be a little bit better mother, and I need to be a little bit better daughter, or whatever it is. But the Bible says it's worse than that, But the good news is way better than that. It's not just tips. We're part of the problem, but when you accept that, that's what makes the good news so good. That's what makes Jesus' mission worth celebrating because where Adam failed and where Israel failed, we see, and where all of us have failed, we see here in this scene Jesus succeeding. Jesus succeeding. Jesus in the wilderness, hungry, after weeks without eating, alone in a desolate place, being tempted by the devil himself, and yet he doesn't give in. He's not in a garden with every need met. He's not just been brought through miraculously. He's in the wilderness, (laughs) He's hungry, and yet he succeeds where we have failed. And as I, we're done with where we failed, all right? You guys good? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we don't want to hear about it. No. We're moving from where we failed to where Jesus succeeds. And, and the first reason this is a huge deal is because Jesus was not Superman. Jesus was not Superman. Anyone like Superman when you're growing up? Yeah. It's fun, right? He kind of like looks normal, but then he's got the suit on underneath. And 
just kind of limitless power to save anyone who's in trouble and all that. Um, he looks normal on the outside, but everyone knows he's just Superman, even though he's got on different clothes. Um, but the image we get of Jesus in the New Testament is not Superman. He, he is fully God, but he's also fully human. He's fully human. And we see in this passage, he's going through some of the most human experiences. He's alone. He's hungry. He has needs. His body has limits. And he's being tempted. If we miss, if we miss this, if we miss the humanity of Jesus, then I think what we do is we read through the Gospels just like it's, a, it's just a victory parade. Just rah, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We don't see, oh, he came over here and he healed them and he came over there and he did this. And we don't see the emotions of Jesus. We skip over the parts where Jesus wept. We skip over the parts that talk about Jesus being amazed at someone's faith. We skip over the parts that he was lonely and that he went to lonely places to pray. We skip over the parts that he was tired and he had to sleep in the boat. If we read it wrong, we just think, oh, he was playing a trick on them. He took a nap in the boat. And they thought he was asleep. And then he woke up and said, I'm Superman. <laughs> no, he was, I think he was asleep in the boat because he was tired from doing ministry. Are you guys hearing this? We, we, sometimes we fail when we read it just as we just look at like God with a mask on. But no, he was really human. And that's what makes this scene even more special to me. Because what we see is not just a parade of victory, but he's on a mission that involves suffering. He's not just on a victory parade all the way through his ministry. He's in part of a battle to the death or a battle to the life after death, right? Because he is victorious. But this scene is showing us that there is a spiritual battle, a war going on throughout all of Jesus' ministry. And this is the first test that Satan gives him, but it shows up everywhere. He goes to preach somewhere and demon-possessed people cry out and all sorts. There is spiritual battle going on that Jesus is on. It wasn't just a parade that he's on. It's a mission that involves suffering, suffering for our sins, not his own, suffering for our sake and to set us free. So the first of all, it's important for us to know Jesus wasn't Superman. And second of all, it's important for us to know in these areas where Jesus succeeds that the temptations he faces made sense to him. They were not just random. It was not just like, oh, this would be cool if you made bread. You know, and, and I know we get that like he's hungry, but sometimes we think of the temptations like, well, it doesn't kind of make sense, but it sounds funny to us, but in the moment, temptation always makes sense. Even for us, Right? When you're tempted to do something, it makes sense. <laughs> That's <laughs> you'll make it make sense. You'll justify it. That's why it's temptation because it makes sense in our mind. And so when we look at Jesus going through these temptations, yes, he's hungry, and 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 uh, the devil comes and says, "If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread." Couple things. See that he questions the identity of Jesus. Because we just learned in the passage, it said it twice, Jesus is the Son of God. And then we go to this scene, if you are the Son of God. 
Toby stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. In a lot of ways, the devil is saying this. If you're so special, if you are, if you are really the son of God, then use the power that you have for your own needs. Use it to serve yourself. You have these miraculous powers. You ever think about it? Jesus did multiply bread later in his ministry. But the temptation here is, take these powers you have and use them for yourself. It's okay, you're special. You're God's son. If you're God's son, just and you're hungry, God wouldn't want you to be hungry, would he? Take that power you have and use it to serve yourself. The second one, looking at the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom and the splendor of the world, and the devil says, I'll give it to you. I will give, you'll have all this kingdom and this splendor. You'll have the attention. You'll have the glory. All you got to do is worship me. It's kind of a big ask there. <laughs> but if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus says that it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And one way of seeing what the devil is offering him is, how many know that Jesus is going to receive all glory? Jesus is the king. Jesus is on a mission. That is going to happen. But what the devil is saying, I want you to bypass the suffering part. If you're the king, if you're God's son, if you're the Messiah, why don't you just have the glory now? Don't go to the cross. Just do it my way. I'm going to offer you a cheap imitation of <laughs> that glory in a way that you don't have to go, you don't have to go this way of suffering. You can just skip the cross and have it now. And Jesus says, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knows Israel's been through that test before with the golden calf. No, worship God. The third temptation. The devil actually quotes scripture on that temptation. I don't know if you guys noticed that. But the devil uses scripture too. <laughs> it's just out of context. Which is why it's so important that we keep scripture in context. Because just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's a true teaching. Okay. Do y'all yeah, agree with that? All right, yeah, okay, good. I mean, that's what we believe here. Uh, the devil tries to take Scripture out of context and to tempt Jesus with it in this passage of Psalms. And he's basically saying, if you're God's son, he won't let you get hurt. This passage says he wouldn't, he wouldn't let David get his, uh, wouldn't let David stub his toe, stub his toe. So surely, if you're, I mean, if you're God's son, if you're, the, if you're the king from David's line, if you're the Messiah, like, just basically just prove it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> if you're God's son, he won't let you get hurt. That's proof that God's not with you if he does let you get hurt. And Jesus says, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Did you know that every time Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written, he is quoting from passages in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which is a section that is telling Israel to remember the lessons they learned in the wilderness. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's going to provide. God's going to provide for you. Man shall not live. I know my needs are important, but God's will is more important than my needs. And Jesus said it and believed it and lived it. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Don't bow down to any other thing. Any other thing that Satan tells you is the most important thing in your life, don't bow down to it. Don't make a golden calf in your own heart. Jesus says, worship the Lord and serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus succeeded where we fail. When every other human in the history of the planet has chosen their own way, me included, Every other human has chosen to serve themselves and put their needs first. Maybe not all the time, but at least sometimes. Every other human on the planet has chosen to worship and serve something other than God and to make a good thing a God thing in their life and to bow down to it even though it can't actually save them. Every one of us has done that. And yet Jesus, when he's tempted and alone in the wilderness, holds on to God. He wins with God's word. As the son, he trusts in his father perfectly, even though the devil's trying to drive a wedge, if you are the son of God. No, he holds to God. He goes with God's mission for his life, even though it's going to lead to suffering. He chooses radical obedience to God, even though it will take him to the cross, ultimately. Jesus succeeds where we fail, and this is why it's so significant, because we want to put ourselves into the story. You know, when we read a story, we want to put ourselves in. Anyone? I want to put myself in the story. But what happens is we want to see ourselves in Jesus' shoes. And we want to say, okay, how can I be strong to say no, no, no? This is how you beat temptation. Just quote scripture. Just have a Bible verse for everything. We want to see ourselves in the story, but we see ourselves playing the wrong part. We're Adam. We're Israel. Jesus is the one who's victorious. Jesus is the, he's the only one. He's the only one who said no to all the temptations. He's the only one that was tempted every way like we are and yet without sin. And that's why he's the only one who could save us. Because he never sinned. Before we see, and here, there's a, I do believe there's a way of reading the scriptures and seeing ourselves in Jesus' shoes, but before we see ourselves in Jesus' shoes, we need to see him in our shoes and him standing and fighting the battle with evil, with the devil himself and winning for every time that we've lost. He won. That's why Jesus is more than just our example. He's our champion. He's more than just our role model in how to be a better person. He's our savior from the curse of sin and death. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in how I preach to you today. Because if if it's one way, I'm just preaching to you advice. Here's what you do, and here's what you do, and here's what you do. Amen. See you next week. But on the other way, I'm actually preaching good news. News about something that's happened that changes your life. That's what news is. News is, hey, this event happened. Now live accordingly. 
On the one way, I'm teaching tips and tricks on how to resist the devil. And on the other way, I'm saying we've got to follow the only one who ever defeated evil. On the one way, I'm just laying more and more burdens on you, knowing that none of us can carry them all on our own. And on the other way, I'm saying, no, it's a blessing to follow God because he fought the battle and won the victory, and then he shared the spoils of war with us. Come on, somebody. You guys with me? Jesus succeeded where we fail. Before we see ourselves in his shoes, we need to see him in our shoes winning the battle that we so often have lost if we're honest in our own lives. So if that's true, what do we do? If that's true, if, if we have failed and yet Jesus has succeeded in the areas that we've been tempted and fallen in our own lives, what do we do? How do we begin to see ourselves in his shoes? How do we resist temptation? How do we... How do we, by God's grace, begin to be part of the solution and not part of the problem of the evil that has plagued this planet? A few things. I want to end with these and um, go quickly with, with three things. First, believe in Jesus. Sounds really basic if you're a Christian. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. But what do I mean by that? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, one way of explaining it is this. You trust him as your champion. You trust him as your champion. How do you know the Aztecs are 20 and 0 right now? Yeah, a fan right there like. <laughs> we're trying to get, because uh, Hannah's a student there, and so we're going to try to get some tickets and go see a game. Um, I'm a, uh, was it? Jumping on the bandwagon there. I've never been to a game for the Aztecs. But I'm from Arkansas, and I follow the Razorbacks, and we're having a good season two, 15 and four. And uh, I've been watching some games when I can. And you know what's crazy about when you have a team? Does anyone here have a team that you like or follow any sport? Niners? Niners? Okay, there we go, yeah. Raiders! (laughs) (laughs) What did I do? What did I do? I just opened up this box. No, you're going to know what I'm talking about. When you watch a game and it's someone that you care about, it's a team that you identify with, like what happens when the game is over? You're either like, we won, or you're like, we lost. And every time it's like, we who? (laughs) You were watching from your TV, having a beverage and some popcorn and some snacks, like we won? Like, why are you smiling right now? You didn't win that. Or why are you like grumpy the next day going to work? You didn't lose. Like just because your team lost, you're not a loser. It's okay. Like, but we do that, right? We're bonded with our team. I was reading this uh, article this week from the BBC, and scientists uh, did a study on uh, scientists from Oxford did a study on soccer fans um, during the World Cup in 2014, and they tested. Uh, their saliva before, during, and after the game. It's Brazil versus Germany, and uh, they're testing for cortisol levels, the hormone related to stress, right? And the headline, um, the headline says that they have, that these soccer fans have stress levels that are dangerous when watching their teams play. <laughs> and they said that statistically, there's a higher risk of heart attack during games. And that these stress levels can actually do damage to your heart if it's already weak. 
we get bonded with our team, right? You're identified with the team. They represent you. Even though you're not playing the game, you feel the loss like it's yours, or you feel the win like it's yours. And what I'm saying about believing in Jesus is I'm saying this. You need to trust him as your champion. He's the one who fought evil for you. That's what he did in this scene, and that's what he did on the cross. That's why we make such a big deal that it was my sin that put him there. He took my sin and your sin on himself on the cross, and yet he gave us his righteousness. He is our champion. That's why Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, it's talking about Jesus, who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Come on. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Believe in Jesus. Trust him as your champion. Every area that you failed, he already knows it and he already paid the price for your forgiveness and for your healing. Trust him as your champion. When I'm too weak to do, he did. We say a lot of times, right, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. It's not how strong your faith is or weak your faith is. It's where that faith is pointed and who you have it resting on. And if it's anyone other than Jesus, at one point you will experience your life crumbling under the weight of serving the wrong Savior. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He is our champion. Secondly, what we learn from this passage, to resist temptation and to be part of the solution for evil is this. Stand on God's word. Stand on God's word. Trust God's word. When tempted, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. But when Jesus is tempted by the devil, the best tempter (laughs) that exists, Jesus didn't respond by arguing. Jesus didn't respond by explaining himself. He didn't respond by arguing. Do you know that arguing uh, often, arguing with temptation in your own mind is often a way of entertaining the idea until it sounds better and better to go along with it. No, when Jesus was tempted, he didn't argue. He said, it is written. It is written. It is written. God said. God said. God said. When you're tempted, whatever it may be, money, sex, power. Uh, in, in 1 John, it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Any way that you are tempted to sin against God, don't respond by arguing in your heart. Respond with the word of God. Respond with, and if you don't know what the word of God says, Ask somebody and research it. What does God say about the thing I'm being faced with temptation about? Because that's the only way you're going to be successful against it. And if you're here today and you don't believe that this scripture has authority for your life, then you're not, I don't think you're really going to experience the power of the scripture to give you victory over the evil one. If every time you're tempted, you argue with it or explain or philosophize or theologize or whatever, instead of turning to God's word and trusting him, I don't know that you're going to experience the freedom that God can give you through his word. When you're tempted, stand on God's word. Amen? Third thing, when you're tempted, rely on the Holy Spirit. 
rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you guys noticed when this passage, you know, in the last passage last week, Jesus baptized and, and the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and he's really endowed with the Holy Spirit and everything in his ministry after that is empowered by the Spirit. But in the beginning of this passage, it says, verse one, I love verse one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then at the end of the passage, verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The scripture's trying to make it clear to us. Jesus was full of the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus came back in the power of the Spirit. The way that we are gonna resist the temptation of the evil one to bring evil and havoc and sin into our lives and to the lives of our families and friends is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not Superman. He relied on the Holy Spirit and the Spirit gave him victory over the enemy. Jesus was fully human, but he relied on the Spirit. And here's the good news of that. Today, if your faith is in Christ, if you are trusting in him as your champion, that same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you. The same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you. Believe in Jesus. Stand on God's word. Rely on the Holy Spirit. And I'll close with this. As I was studying this passage, um, something uh, really interesting just kind of came to the surface I, I didn't know before, but um, it has to do with the Greek word that's used in this passage for uh, tempting or testing, and the word is perazo. And the interesting thing about it is it can mean uh, either tempting, as in tempting to do something bad, or testing, which is something that's good and refining and showing and revealing character. It can be used either way. And to me, that means something because I see the tension in the passage. Yes, the devil is trying to tempt, but in my Bible, they have headings which are not part of the Bible, but they named this heading Jesus tested in the wilderness. So yes, the devil's tempting him, but also he's being tested and he's passing the test. And this is part of the section where Jesus is being prepared for ministry. And it says after this, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he preaches his message at Nazareth. And here's my point. There's a preacher I heard before who said this, every temptation is also an opportunity to do good. And that will transform your view of temptation in your life as you're following Jesus. Every temptation is also an opportunity to do good. Every time you say no to something the devil or your spiritual enemy of your soul is tempting you to do, every time you say no to that and yes to God, the character that God is revealing in you is being tested and refined and you are being shaped more and more into the image of Christ. It's like the end of Genesis where, where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I can't fully explain this, but I know that when you're tempted, you're also being tested, and God can use that for good. And he will, and he is. Let's pray. Let's end on that note. God, we just thank you so much for... Um, for time to gather here today, and we thank you for your word, God, that 
Thank you for this scene, Lord, just a view into um, the hatred and the rage that the devil would bring out against your son. And yet, Jesus stands as the one who is faithful, the one who succeeds, God, where I have failed, where I've looked to other things, where I've put my needs first, where I've, where I've said, oh, I want to I fulfill this mission of my life, but I want to bypass the suffering that might happen along the way. Or God, I, God, I feel abandoned. I feel like you, you saved me and then you forgot about me on the backside of the circumstance. And are you even really here among us? God, I've put you to the test. God, I've fallen, I've fallen prey to that temptation of if I'm really one of your kids, then I won't get hurt. But Jesus, you succeeded every single way. You, you did not put your needs first, but you gave up your rights to give us new life. You did not worship any other thing other than God. And you didn't, you didn't put God to the test. You didn't doubt his will to save. You didn't accuse him of having an evil in his heart when he's a good, loving father. And you succeeded, Lord, to give us the share in that victory, to bless us, God, you took our sin, you take our failures, you take our missteps and mistakes and our rebellion against you, and you take it into yourself on the cross and give us forgiveness and healing and freedom and love and a new identity and a new mission. And God, it's only when we believe in you, it's only when we trust in your word, it's only when we rely on the Holy Spirit that we are going to live in our identity as daughters and sons of God. And when we're going to live out the mission that you've called us to, that you want to bless the whole world through us, God. I pray that you would move in our hearts over these next few minutes. We invite you, God, into this response time. I pray that um, you would call us to you, closer to you. We desire, Lord, to be changed and be different. God, if, if, if we need to repent, let us repent, God. If we need to remember your grace, let us remember your grace. God, if we need to give you parts of shame in our life and remember that you are victorious, Lord, just pray that you would use this time as you desire. And we pray it in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.